Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Collegian for my co-host Ryan Gibson, and you've joined us for part two of our interview with producer Sophia Sondervan, which is a great talk. She's an old friend. She's a a Dutch-American, which I'm always fascinated with filmmaker immigrants, right? Because there's an old saying that a new American or a new citizen or a visitor sees a place with fresh eyes. Nothing is lost on them and everything is a question mark, right? We assume things in within our visual field. Like there's a great old uh, R. Crumb, if you remember the cartoonist R. Crumb, where his whole aesthetic was to draw power lines and phone lines and trash and cracks in the wall and street signs and, and billboards, all the things that muddy up our view of the splendor of nature, the beauty of a sunset. And what we do is after a while, we don't see that stuff. We just block it out. That's what I love about people like Sophia is they, they love America. They came to America. They decided to leave their country, their native land, to come to our shining shores. And so they have an appreciation for it. They have a healthy sort of skepticism of it. They have a, uh, just a different perspective. And so it's a great interview. She's done incredible work. She seen the the rise and fall of independent cinema. And I don't know where we are now, somewhere in the middle, percolating for a second coming. Anyway, so this is part two of our conversation with her. And we talk a little bit more about her career, but mostly we talk about the film that she brought for us to discuss in honor or homage to the great fallen Jean-Luc Godard. And again, she followed the rules, which some of our guests are very you know, hesitant to do, which means it's a B-side. Godard obviously is a huge director, but you know, this would be contempt which is more of a B-side. We know him. We know this film. It's not what he's known for as a filmmaker or the, you know, the quintessential example of his aesthetic. But it's almost like we know it more for the poster. This is uh, Bridget Bardot in all her splendor. You know, mépris. I believe I'm saying that right. Mépris, Contempt in French, the original title. It is a film about a film which is always up our alley. And what's great about it is I think contempt means many things. And we kind of get into that, the subjectivity of when you watch a film, how you're seeing it. We talked a little about that last episode. Anyway, great film. I hadn't seen it. I had seen the poster. I had seen Bridget Bardot, but I never seen the film. And I loved it because, again, it's about film. And you see Godard reaching for a Hollywood film and failing and making it a Godard film, which is best the best thing that could have happened. But I don't know that he wanted to do that. It's just that's what happened. And, um, and that is what happens. I mean, some of the best things I've ever written, songs, scripts, whatever, are, are, are poor, failed attempts at imitation. And then it just comes out differently. And then you can be like, oh, no, I, I wasn't trying to learn how to play, um, you know, Jumpin' Jack Flash. I meant to. That was my riff. Yeah. See, see. Yeah. And that's art, man. You got to love it. I know I do. I talked, you know, 
ad nauseum about it and continue to. Anyway, that's the long and short of it. Enjoy part two of our interview with producer Sophia Sondervan as we discuss her career and the film Contempt or Mépris in Francais. Enjoy. Fine. So wait, but you're, you're skipping ahead. Tell me about Party Monster. I love that film. And it kind of, do you remember going to clubs and like getting crazy? Like when we were in school, like that whole club kid, I feel like I I might've met Michael Alec one time, you know, through mutual friends of ours. So just to give some backstory. So, so we're in NYU in the early nineties and that was when like the club scene was huge. It was places like the building and tunnel and limelight were huge. So we would go to clubs a lot, had friends that were like DJs or like party promoters or whatever and get on the list. And so Party Monster was this like kind of the definitive movie of that scene, would you say, Sophia? Uh, Yeah. Of that era? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I think it's so important to begin with a bag, don't you? One day, I realized I didn't want to have to get up in the morning and go to work. I'm Michael Al. King of the club kids. I want you to teach me how to be fabulous. Don't dream it, be it. Fabulous. So it should come as no surprise that I ended up in New York City. I wanted to create my own world. One big party. You need me to promote this place. We'll see. You won't regret this. And that was you and Pressman, right? That was that came through him? Yeah, so I think I saw that film originally when I was at Independent Pictures. And I was working, and Carrie Woods was heading Independent Pictures. And I think at that time we couldn't make it with, it was Killer Films, Christine Machan, who was yeah, spearheading yeah. that film. And like you, it, that spoke to me because I used to work in the clubs. I used to work at Club USA and I worked at the tunnel for a moment. And the supper club. So I really understood yeah. that world and was very much and, and I remember when when Michael Alec died, we were all working at Miramax and all everybody used to go to the clubs at night. So it was a big sort of part of ours growing up. It was like the end of that yeah. era. Yeah. So I think it came back around when I was at Content, and Content had, of course, its own funding. So now you know, I was able to, I think both Ed and John recognized that this could be a really great project. And of course, with Christine, you know, as producer attached and, and, and having the relationship with those filmmakers and of course, you know, great cast relationships, it just felt like a, like a no brainer. And so I was able to convince them to, to come into this film and then, um, able to make it. And that was kind of your first feature, right? Your first bigger feature? I think I did Hebrew Hammer before that. What about Mordecai Jefferson Carver? If I wasn't so flaccid, I don't understand. This never happens to me. What are you listening to? Must be too much cream cheese or something. Before we leave, there's just one more thing. The sign on your door says that you're a certified circumcised dick. Do you mind if I ask to see your credentials? 
So the Hebrew Hammer was, there was a student at USC Film School who had made a short called The Hebrew Hammer, and he had sent it to a friend of mine, Lisa Fragner. And I'm not sure if he had already had a feature script or if Lisa encouraged him to write a feature script, but she came to me and she said, you should watch the short. It's really good. And there's a feature script and read it. And I read it and I thought the short was okay. I didn't love the short, but I thought the, the script was just brilliant. I was just laughing so hard. I remember just reading it and just cracking up. And I said to her, you know, do you, what do you think? Is he a good filmmaker? And so on. And so we ended up you know, partnering with Lisa and Josh Kesselman, who is the filmmaker, John Kesselman's brother. And I had just had a general meeting with Adam Goldberg about something else, about a different project. And I said, hey, you know, do you want to read this really funny script I just read? May, you know, maybe you can play the lead role. And so I gave him the Hebrew hammer. He took it on the subway with him and he said that he was cracking up on the subway and he called me when he got off the subway and he said, okay, I want to do this movie. So now we had a lead. And so then, you know, John's, John Kesselman, the director, his idea was really to try to get all these people that were involved with black exploitation films and, and you know, mm-hmm. were kind of fixtures in that world. So we reached out to Melvin Van Peebles and then his brother, his son, Mario, plays one of the leads. So we, we were able to put together this very authentic kind of cast very comedy driven andy andy dick who's also been canceled and arrested many times was really good in the movie and so so that's how that got put together and then we we sold it to comedy central and they have been playing it every year at hanukkah time <laughs> <laughs> right it's become like a, a perennial yeah uh, it comes back classic. every year at hanukkah time it was on the list of, of one of the 50 greatest holiday movies of all time. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, uh, let's get back. So Cadillac Records, which is probably one of your big, I mean, you guys, didn't you were nominated for like best picture Golden Globes and like that was a big deal, right? Um, we were nominated for best song at the Golden Globes, but we won. Okay. We were nominated for like eight NAACP awards and we won some of them. Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor. We got some satellites. We got a lot of awards for this film. Nice. Yeah, I'm very proud of that film. That also plays all the time. You can watch it all the time. Yes. something done you ask me i'm gonna tell him what he has to be doing all right that's right only thing you can do is a big motherfucker right there shit get it right all right big man. i'll get your coat so 
take two. Hey, baby. Hmm? Won't you stay for a while? Gotta get your girl out of the ring. Yes, yes. It's a good movie. It's once a year, once a week on one channel somewhere. Always playing. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So tell, all right, so tell the tell the kids a movie that you made now, what, 15 years ago. When you get that mailbox money, is it like three $300, $250 from like Benelux? Like, is it, I don't get anything. Is it a nice check? Or, you I get don't nothing. get anything because I was an employee <laughs> at Sony Music. Right. So I just got Dope. my salary. I didn't get it. No participation. Yeah, I don't get anything. So I, I can't tell you how much money that movie makes. But I imagine that it has a good, solid, you know, return. return. for the, for the yeah. Yeah. yeah, for yeah. someone. Or maybe not. Maybe it's always a perennially a loss for the owners. So that they don't have to actually like send. I checks. honestly have no idea. Do you remember the budget for that movie, Sophia? Uh, it was just under fifteen million. That's a that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Even in even in the for late two thousand, yeah. the late two thousand, so the two two thousand eight, two thousand eight, yeah, yeah, yeah. I that's hard to believe with all that. Well, I guess they owned all the music, right? So no, we didn't own any of the music. So we had you a didn't really own any big music. music budget. We had a really big pre-record budget to pre-record all those artists. Holy cow. But we did something very smart. Million. And that was really all the credits to the writer-director, Darnell Martin, who is an NYU alum. She, because she also had done, she had a, done a bunch of features beforehand. She did I Like It Like That, which one can, Paramount movie. And Their Eyes Were Watching God with Halle Berry. And loads and loads of television. So she had such an amazing, has such an amazing insight on how to shoot things quickly and efficiently. So she, she suggested that we would build this town in New Jersey, actually, because New Jersey had a great tax credit at the time, which ha- went away and apparently has come back. So apparently New Jersey, again, has a great tax credit. So we got a street that had really cool looking buildings in it. And then we basically built... of our locations within that street. Not only did that save us money because we didn't have to do so many company moves, but it was also very quick for Darnell to move from set to set to set. If one wasn't ready, she'd move to another one. So that made a huge... So that's why the budget was... was, We were able to do such a time period. And just for for the... Uh, non-officiated. So basically a company move is uh, just as it sounds, it's the part of the cost and the difficulty of making films is moving locations. So you have to load up all these trucks with all these people and all this equipment and re physically relocate somewhere else, hopefully in the same town or nearby, but just the time it takes to load it up, drive it, unload it, is hours and days wasted that you're not actually capturing film. So this was a great idea because they literally didn't have to load trucks. They just had to run across the street or go next door. And that that's really smart. Yes. That was a really good way of, you know, keeping the budget down. For To do that movie under 15 million is unbelievable. It's, it's awesome. We also, you know, a lot of the Chicago exteriors, 
were done in China. We had we had an amazing <laughs> we had an amazing special effects company in China that just painted in cars. They had Chinese people in you know costume shot from behind as extras and things like that that were put in later. So wow. yeah, so that really <laughs> saved us a ton of money. Just on extras alone. Yeah. And cars, period cars. Yeah. 600 a day. Right, right, right. Did that put you in sort of a subcategory of like music, biopic, like, because London Town, I I think of London Town as another example in this, like, did people come at you and say, oh, you're the one that does the great, like, sort of homages to, to, you know, past music legends and stories about the, the music business that were you known as that or it just was like completely random that you did another one like a few years later? No. So London Town, I developed that while I was at Sony Music. So that was something. Okay. I so it was in the, yeah, a music film. So you just took yeah. it with. And then, okay. but definitely since then, I've been approached a lot about doing music movies because as you mm-hmm, point out, mm-hmm. I think that's often happens that people start to pigeonhole you as Oh, that person does horror movies. That person does this, that person. So, yeah, yeah. What are you looking at? Just wondering what you're listening to. Piss off. Come on, I'm curious. The Clash. Huh? I've got to get to London. And leave Wanstead. You mad? Child of mine is going to live in a bloody squat with a bunch of hippies. We've got an obligation to clash hands and tell people to wake up. Wake the bloody hell up, people! I'm working on another project with Darnell, which is a mu- another music biopic. Other than that, it's not my favorite subject that I have to work in. So. It's very gratifying working with musical artists, but it's also very difficult because you're always competing with their tour schedule and their tour schedule is always going to take priority because that's how artists, musical artists, their their biggest source of income is is touring and live concerts. So movies are fun, but they're not, they're not their main source of income. So concerts are, and touring schedules are always going to take priority over your movie. And so sometimes you end up waiting a very, very long time for an artist. And then in the end, they don't want to do it anymore. So it's tricky. It's tricky working with artists. It's, it's very Absolutely. gratifying when it works out because they're really, really, really fun to work with. But you, you, you do take a bit of a risk. Because it's the old adage, like every musician wants to be an actor and every actor wants to be a musician. Like they're kind of, they're excited. When they're on the set, they turn your whole set into this, I think when Beyonce was working on on Cadillac Records, I've heard it quoted a few times that everyone would have worked for free that whole week just to be in her presence. 
you know, because when she was <laughs> rehearsing behind a wall, I remember all the crew was standing there secretly listening because to her singing, because it was just like incredible. It was the best thing you ever heard in your life. You know, it was such a, such a pleasure. So I imagine it's the same as working with actors that are in musicals or mostly on stage. They're quite fun to work with because they're excited to do something different. And they're also used to entertaining people. They're right. They just have that natural. They're just, it just come flows out of them. It makes everyone feel it across the set. You know, when someone who really is a performer and loves to be on set, because not everybody loves to be on set. Not everybody likes to make movies. It's hard, but it's hard to do sometimes. So it's nice when you get those folks who are just willing to give it all and bring up, like you saying that Beyonce brought up the morale of the entire crew for a week because people love being around folks who, who bring it yeah. every day. Yeah. It, it can change. It can change really the the way a movie is being filmed and way the way it's being produced. To have someone like that who's really like gung ho and all in and not difficult, who includes everybody, whether they are including everybody or not, is a different story. As long as people feel like they're being included, I think. Yeah. Would you say that you're like a you work well with talent? I mean, J Lo was a singer and actor. Yeah, you've worked with a lot of talent. She was not acting in that film, so I think that's a little different. But I enjoy working with talent, sure. It's just like any any work relationship. Some people you really click with and others, you know, you're more on the surface with. It just depends who. But it's really like any other work relationship in a way. And some people you work with, you're kind of stabby stabby with. You just want to get them out of your life. Are you stabby stabby with each other? No. There, oh, we Alex can be. Oh, we can be for we sure. We can be. Oh, mom and dad are fighting. Everyone take five. No, there will be no five taken. We'll continue to battle until one of we'll, us is dead. We'll fight. We'll fight in sign language so that we don't blow it. Tell us about the Oscars. Oh, that was really fun. You were you were nominated. Yeah. So you made a short film. Tell us the story of that. You made a so short film. So I made a short film with a really good friend of mine who is a well-known documentarian. She, she made two really successful feature documentaries and really wanted to explore narrative. I've been trying to get her to do narrative for many years and she just wasn't that interested. And then you know, one day we got together and she had a short window of opportunity because she was actually pregnant before giving birth. And so coming from NYU where we do lots of shorts and some really, really good ones, I said, you know, what about making a short film? I think we have exactly enough time to try to pull that off. And she had already had this idea to do a, sh- to do a short and she had a story in her mind. And so we decided to, to do that. And then it didn't get into any festivals. It was the most depressing thing ever. COVID hit and a lot of festivals got canceled and Sundance turned us down. And then we got into Tribeca. We were so happy because she had won Tribeca before with her documentary. So they were familiar with us. Oh, and I should say that Topic Topic Studios, Topic Media was our partner on the film. So Topic was already set to release it on their channel, topic.com. And they were, they were with us from the beginning. So they were a great partner. And then we got into Tribeca and then we decided that Tribeca was just going to be virtual. So we decided we didn't want that to be the first time anyone was going to see this film. 
So we didn't screen at Tribeca. And then we got into Telluride. Can you imagine like the greatest festival of all festivals? And then Telluride didn't have a fans- festival. They canceled their festival. So now it's whatever, September. We still haven't screened anywhere. And then we got into Palm Springs and we decided to do a short window there because we thought at least then some people will see our film. So we screened at, at Palm Springs. And then right after that, we had a really nice screening also at Holly Shorts, which is an Oscar qualifying festival. And it's a, it's a really, mm-hmm. it's a really great festival. And so I think from one of those, we were now eligible. F- ah, no, then Topic put us into theaters so that we would qualify for an Oscar submission. So w- then we played at a couple of theaters, I think in Atlanta, in New York and somewhere else, I think. I don't exactly remember where we played, but we played at some theaters and now we were qualified for the Oscars. And so we did our Oscar submission, really not expecting much because as you can tell, like we didn't have much of a festival run and there wasn't much buzz about the film because of really COVID, not having many festivals in general. And then all of a sudden somebody called me, someone I didn't know, this woman called me and she said, you know, tomorrow, she introduced herself and she said, you know, tomorrow the short list comes out. And I said, what's the short list? And she said, oh, it's when they announce what films are going to get nominated, are going to get nominated or have a chance to get nominated. And I was like, oh, interesting. We'd kind of forgotten about that. We, we didn't think we really had a shot at this. So no one was really actively tracking this. So I thought, well, now I'm excited. Now I want it to be tomorrow. But it was, of course, we had to wait another 24 hours. And I called Elvira and I told her. And then we waited. And then suddenly we were on the short list. And that was really, really exciting because now we had to really start working very, very hard to try to get nominated. So we also had a European distributor called Salot Morissette, who is a really expert at shorts. And they have a lot of experience in doing campaigns for short films. And so they guided us kind of on on the stuff we needed to do to get fans, to get support for the film. And then we got nominated. And then we went to the Oscars and then we didn't win. (laughs) But it was really fun to go to the Oscars because it was the, the first live show in like two years. And it was really small and really intimate. So it was, it was a lot of fun and we were really, really excited to be there. I'm really honored to be there. Nice. So that's the story. That's fun. Do you want to talk about the film or at least pitch the short film? To the, oh, sure. To the so the film is called The Letter Room and it's directed by Elvira Lind, who wrote and directed it. And it stars Oscar Isaac, Alia Shawkat, and John Douglas Thompson and many other talented actors. And it's about a prison guard who works in a death row maximum security prison and who is in charge of screening the mail that comes into the prison. And he starts reading the mail, which he's not supposed to, and then becomes infatuated with one of the women who's writing to one of the death row prisoners. And I'll leave it at that. So, Richard, I think we finally found a position for you in human relations like you requested. 
All correspondence to and from inmates is filtered through you. Sal, I won't be able to send you money this week. Things are tight. Michael, the packaging code is incorrect. Chris, my love, I think about you every second of every day. I feel like every part of me is coming undone. I feel your touch in my sleep. You are in my breaths of air. You are all the beams of sunshine that ever touch my skin. I imagine it is your warm hands on my body, stroking me. I feel you grow by the touch of my hands. An ocean is released deep inside of me. Just checking in? Yeah, it's really good. It's great. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. All righty then. Adios. You can watch this movie on Topic.com or Vimeo, I think. Tell us a Oscar Isaac story. I don't have an Oscar Isaac story. He's amazing. Oh, He's that means... You have an off camera. You have an off mic one, but no, he's a he's a fantastic actor. He really turned into this character, which was mm-hmm. you know, really takes a great actor to transform that way. Mm-hmm. And I think he, because he is married to the director, I think they had a lot of time to prepare for this role. So I think it was just something that was really, really well worked out from the beginning. So it just, it was just a fantastic performance. I do love his picture on the front of the box. With the yeah, great mustache. A great, That's a real a great, mustache. Uh, yeah, That's one his mustache. Yeah, great one sheet. That's real. <laughs> no, <laughs> no stunt mustaches That's there. a real mustache. Well, I do have a little funny story, actually. I have one funny there story. There you go. So, of course, you know that he plays Poe Dameron in Star Wars. Who? And my... No. What? Who? He's in the franchise? He's, he works for the mouse? Poe Dameron. And my son <laughs> loves Star Wars and, of course, mm-hmm. has met Oscar a few times because because we're friends with them. Because mom, my mom knows him. And so when he, so he came to set one day and, and, and Oscar came over and said hi to him. And he was like, who's that? And I said, that's Oscar. He said, that's not Oscar. That's a man with a mustache. <laughs> and he just didn't realize, he was so confused that, Poe Dameron had this big mustache and didn't look and a beer <laughs> belly, which was a fake prosthetic belly, and didn't look anything like <laughs> Poe Dameron. In the Rebel Alliance, physical fitness isn't really key, but no facial hair. Yeah, so he I was very he was very confused, and uh, then felt really bad that he hadn't greeted him properly because he was really confused about who that man was <laughs> that said hello to him. Be sure to check out other episodes of How I Got Greenlit, including the time Nadine Crocker, writer, producer, director, actor, joined us to talk about indie film and how it's important to know how to be a leader by being a good worker and learning all the roles on the set so you know how to give instruction and you know how to hire. They say as you become the boss, it's like being a ship captain. Like you should know every role. Maybe not be great at it, but just so you know who to hire. 
you know yeah well and I also think it helps too like if you've done some crew work and I started in like art department on low budget shows and had to get really inventive doing things that way so I just feel like once you've been behind the camera and had to do some of the crew work that pays you like two cents and works you like 16 hours you kind of start to figure shit out (laughs) exactly Be sure to check out our two-parter with Nadine Crocker. It's really a special episode, not only about learning about how to make your first film, but more importantly, the healing aspect of filmmaking and for Nadine, the healing aspect of film loving and how some of her favorite films got her through incredibly tough times personally. Enjoy that and many others at our archive. And now... Back to the show. All right. Now we get to the festivities. This is the the film that you have brought that has influenced you. And again, our criteria are, is very specific. You might even say our criterion. Yes, criteria. Is we ask that you talk about a great director that people should know, right? Because we're trying to turn people on. This is sort of dedicated to all my Midwest relatives that are like, you make the movies. Like, what should I watch? What's, I mean, I've seen like Jazz and Godfather. What else is out there? And I try to say, well, look, you know, if you like Godfather, Coppola made other films. Have you ever heard of The Conversation? Or, you know, and they go, what's that? And so this is a B-side of a famous director. So obviously Jean-Luc Godard. Very influential, super famous director. We've all seen, or at least should have seen Breathless as a sort of like seminal groundbreaking film. Contempt was, as you said, later in his career. And it was his attempt at trying to make a mainstream film. It's It's on anamorphic. It's really beautifully shot. It's set in like Capri and, and it's just, it's gorgeous to look at. And doesn't feature so many of his editorial flourishes and things there's, we know. There's a but couple little. There's, there's a, a few. Little, like, there's a yeah, taster, that he tosses in there. Taster's choice. To, he couldn't own, help himself. But but he was trying to, I think, tamp that down. And but still can't. He can't not be Godard, right? So this is contempt. I do want to ask Sophia? Do you think Godard is a one of the tent poles that? that if anyone's interested in film, they should watch his work. Yeah. I think he's done really, really important work. And I think, you know, knowledge is power, right? So the more you watch, the more you can form your own, your own voice and your own opinion on things. So I definitely think he's one of the seminal directors of the French new wave movement, which was a very important movement in filmmaking. So I would definitely recommend watching his movies. He's actually not my favorite French New Wave director. My favorite one is is um, Truffaut because Truffaut is more traditional in its storytelling, which is something I on a personal level like more. But I think Godard's movies are incredible and right. groundbreaking. That's And I think, you know, we really lost a legend. So that's why yeah. I thought it would be good to point out. This is also a film I think we spoke about earlier that we, we watched in film school. And I saw a totally different film then than I saw now. So that was interesting to me, as you pointed out, to see how we change and how the times change. You know, things that we wouldn't even have noticed. Can we talk about the film? Bientôt. Bientôt. 
Michel Piccoli. L'Alfa Romeo. Le musical. La statue grecque. Le revolver. Le, Le nouveau film traditionnel de Jean-Luc Godard. The screenwriter, whose name I can't remember now, hits Brigitte Bardot, his wife, in the face. And she just says, I'm very angry at you because I don't think you're being very nice right now. Something like that, paraphrasing. I mean, in today's world, that wouldn't, that, can you imagine? It struck me as very French. I mean, you're European. I feel like w what you're talking about is an American reaction, but wouldn't you say that French, Italian cultures maybe have not a today. slightly, not they're, today. They're, they're better now, but not today. Not today. This, this not would today. not apply okay. today in any culture. She let him. She lets him have it. She lets him have it too. He goes to hit her. He doesn't really. And land. she and whacks she, him she, out too. Yeah. I mean, she comes back with a good couple of blows. In fact, in, in the acting, her face looks like she wants to beat his ass, and then he actually yeah. backs off. He realizes, and that is like there is some. This film is not for me, but there is some there's some fantastic camera work in this movie, and there is some fantastic acting in this movie, and that that is one of the scenes that stood out for me when he goes, he's not getting the answers he wants, and he <laughs> he cocks off and smacks her, and and doesn't land the blow, whether that's because he pulled his punch because they're acting or whatever, but she lets him have it. And he's like, he's shocked. Like he's shocked and she gives it to him. Yeah. But also like, uh, was it, would there be that much like cheesecake now? I mean, there's just lingering shots. of. Well, her I read something interesting like about that today. So I read today, I, I was just, I, I wanted to see what the, some of the critiques on the movie were because just because I was curious and Roger Ebert wrote, about the film that it was kind of Godard's Godard had a, an argument with his producers on this, on making this film, which is Carlo Ponti. And I don't remember who the other producer is. And they said to him that he didn't, that he had Brigitte Bardot, this great actress, very sex, sexiest actress of the time, but that he wasn't using her in any kind of sexual scenes or any nudity scenes. And so as punishment, right he put those lingering shots of her in the beginning of the opening of the film where she's naked, but you don't see that much. And she's like, do you like my butt? Do you like my boobs? Do you like my this? Do you like... Then yes, he did yes, that's that the opening scene. to yeah, yeah, yeah. punish them, specifically not making them erotic as a like, here are your right. nude shots. There you go. But I'm, here are your nude Take shots, them. but I'm not making <laughs> them erotic. <laughs> on purpose. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, right. And he, and they also said that he kind of modeled the producer character after his own producers after, who were like, after Ponte. you know, you were supposed to make a Hollywood movie. <laughs> what is this kind of esoteric film that you're, that you're making instead? So reading that I thought was really, really, because that cleared up a lot of stuff for me. The other thing is there's of course the theme in there of, 
him lend almost like encouraging his wife to go with the sleazy producer because right. he because it's good he, for he, he wants to get the job presumably right and so right. i think that's some of this, uh, this the the issues that hollywood has been exposing for years Forever. now you know yeah. so that was a very early kind of pointing out of this this gnarly culture that kind of goes on behind the scenes he literally says jack Palance says in the beginning he literally says you need the money and he goes, how yeah, do you, you how need do you the know? money because you have a pretty wife. Yeah, that was the, that's the line. You have a pretty wife. That was the whole, yeah, like, Yeah, because you have a yeah. pretty wife and pretty wives are expensive or something like that. I don't even think, I don't even know if he's, I don't even think he says that. I just think he says. He no, he said, no, he, says he just said it's wife. because you have a pretty wife and left yeah. it at that. Yeah. And we all know it's what pretty much yeah, a shot. It's yeah. a shot right over his bow right, right away. I find it. There were. There I just a, love Fritz Lang is in Fritz it. Lang is playing in himself. Yeah. Play, yeah. <laughs> exactly with the monocle, with the monocle, and all. With the monocle. <laughs> <Yeah>. and has <laughs> some good lines too. By the way, yes, very much so. Yeah. What about that weird eyeglass he has in his eye? Yeah, it's monocle. Before. Yeah, Mon- the monocle. Oh, that's called the monocle. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because mono. It's mono. Uh, yeah, one one so eyeglass. Weird. It's like a very old school German thing, right? Like a dueling scar. No, I mean, look, uh, I'm glad you brought this because there's nothing more meta than a podcast talking about a film that has a film within a film, about a film, about filmmakers, about film. Has there ever been a film about a film in which the people are happy and everyone turns out okay? It always seems like it's a fucking nightmare. I feel like the Truffaut (laughs) movie. Have you ever seen a Truffaut movie, Jour et Nuit, Day for Night? Yes. Yes. I feel yes, like that's that was, a bit more positive. Um, that was more of a celebration, but I'm thinking of more like the Italian, what was the uh, the famous ones from the 60s? You know who I'm talking about, where there's like the freaks and the this little people and the... Sounds like you're talking about a carnival sideshow. Can I say one more thing about contempt before yeah. we move on? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I think the... the So what I picked up from contempt besides the relationship, of course, is the producer who signs on to a... Pro- project with the director raises money for this project promises the financiers a very commercial film where they're going to get their money back and look at these stars that we have and then what happens is the director is either not competent or the director goes off script or the director has promised you that the script wouldn't be as experimental as it is and what happens is you go to the edit room and it's completely not what you expected and you're now terrified to deliver this to the to back to your investors and i feel like that is something we also see in this movie through the fritz lang character when he says you've you know when the producer says to fritz lang like you've gone off script and he's like bring me the script i'll show you and he's kicking the cans he's so upset because all that money's blown I do think that's also a very realistic situation. And this film was made in 1963. So clearly this is, a, this problem is as old as filmmaking. Yes. But also I was just thinking it was eight and a half. I couldn't think of the name. Eight and a half was also made in 1963. And it was also kind of an examination the film. Of film. Yeah. yeah. The Fellini film. So yeah, I mean, look you, for every uh, cinema paradiso, which is like kind of a love letter to film. There's, 
it's usually a, an artist like this where they're halfway or, you know, on the other side of their kind of glory days. And it's a very sort of um, bitter portrait of the film business. It's the, it's the equivalent of a band, you know, their first album is all about like driving the car and drinking beer and being with their friends. But the second album is always about the road. And then the third album is about how record companies suck and they fuck them on the deal. Right. So it's like, this, this is like his fucking producer. Saw, it's kind of a, it's kind of a litany of complaints about the film business and also women. I mean, she does not come off. Bardot does not come off very positive. I mean, this is a male gaze movie, right? Like, He's kind of like, what do you want? I don't understand. Why won't you tell me what's wrong? I mean, my question to you, to both of you, is what happened in that in in that time, that half an hour that he was late? Like, why was that such a seminal moment in their relationship? Or was it already over and that was just her? She didn't like that he abandoned her with this like lascivious producer. Like, what was so important about that half an hour that he was catching a cab? I think my interpretation is that he sent her off with the producer because the producer really wanted that. And he was thinking he's going to get a better deal this way, or he's definitely going to get hired. And I think he hit on her when they got there and then he didn't defend her. He didn't defend her when he got there. So he didn't stick up for her. He could see it was felt weird and didn't, and he and didn't, didn't stick accuse up for the producer her. like what have you been doing right. and how dare he you? instead yeah. went to the wash his hands quote unquote and hang out with the um translator flirt with the with the translator yeah. yeah I think it was twofold I think it was and she says this Bardo says this Camille says this she says you're not a man and I think that's because she did not he did not stick up for her and also he basically offered his woman his wife to the producer to get the job and then subsequently but I didn't see that all it was was hey there's only one seat in the car nah, he I, let that, his wife go with the shady producer we saw it because of the way that she was when he of the way she was when he picks her when he arrives. Yeah, and they've spent you, time together. Yeah, she already. was definitely yeah. like and, and yeah, she, she almost was like so, at that point. Oh, also, here's here's the thing, I think, is that he gave her the book of Roman art, which is all just pictures of people fucking. Yeah, and exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. So, we'll find out later. That's right. Right. So he basically is like, hey, here's a book of Kama Sutra. What you doing yeah. right now? <laughs> let's try. Yeah, uh, right. Let's start with page 54. Yeah. The, I, I, right. I, there is a line in there, too, where the, you know, Palance is like, it's my money. He's going on and on about how he's in control and he's the boss. But also... There, uh, I think the character's name is Paul. Says something about off. Oh, you know, he basically says fucking producers. They don't know anything, and, and I think that. Well, Fritz Lang is like that's everybody. All the other filmmakers say how producers suck in their own particular way. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody celebrates the producers. Yeah, yeah, but in the end, but in the end, <laughs> Fritz Lang. In the end, Fritz Lang has a great line, which he's like, "What will you do now?" And he's like, "Well, I finished the movie." You know, he doesn't care that everyone is like in film school. And then you wonder why we didn't want to become producers. (laughs) Well, exactly. But, but also I, I thought it was a pointed thing when the writer said, well, I'm leaving. And he uh, said, okay, well, what are you going to do? 
well, I'm going to finish the film because I always finish. Right. Start. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. But, al- but also I think that also hurt Camille because he thought that it was about him taking the job and buying the flat. And in the end she was like, wait, you offered me to this producer. You made me basically flirt with this guy and possibly expose me to his, you know, carnal desires. And then you're not even taking the job anyway. Like what a piece of shit are you? Like you're, yeah. to- you're right. totally off base on all levels. I will. I want to say this. They open on the movie. They open with the shot, the dolly shot, you know, the dolly coming towards camera. And then there isn't another real shot of them filmmaking until the end, until the, end. the final shot. It's yeah. kind of bush. show the cameras in the beginning. And right. The end. And- and then we're in with them the rest of I will time. also yeah. say this. I I think them Godard taking another shot was about kind of the I don't know, the essence of a producer is they play they're in the screening room and they play the mermaid swimming around, the quote unquote mermaid, and it's just a woman naked in water. And that whole Jack <laughs> that whole Jack Palance like And he's like hey. Oh that's acting so stupid. I know. <laughs> Okay, the opening of the film can speak to everything that we've done up to this point in in our entire careers and adult lives, which is Andre Bizon, the quote that opens the film. The cinema substitutes for our gaze a world more in harmony with our desires. Do you agree with that, Sophia? Do you make films to live the life or to see the things that maybe real life didn't show you? Yeah. I like to make films about things I don't know about. So I guess that's, that's a similar, similar way. Right. I truly Mm -hmm. thought Mm -hmm. I truly, I said, she has to go. I truly thought she was just going to say, yeah. And then, Okay, guys. Yeah, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sophia, thanks for joining. Yeah, sounds thanks good. For, <laughs> thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It was a really interesting conversation. I wish we had longer with you, but we totally understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time. Yeah. yeah this was thanks fun. for Thank your time. You. All right. <laughs> All right. Take thanks, care. thanks All right, Sophia. Well, take care. And that was Sophia Sondervan, producer, writer, director. Thank you for joining us, Sophia. It was a great conversation. This is How I Got Greenlit. Join us at, at How I Got Greenlit on Instagram and Twitter or email us at howigotgreenlit at gmail.com. I'm Alex Collegian. I'm Ryan Gibson. And we are How I Got Greenlit. Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.